Thanks, Joe, and uh, hello, everyone. My name is Cam. Um, I'm one of the staff here, and it's been many months since I last did any preaching. Uh, it's not as far as I know because uh, our senior pastor, Matt, didn't like my last sermon or something like that and sort of you know, put me on the bench. Um, as far as I know, uh, it's been very kind of Matt to give me some time to get ready for uh, the current sermon series we're starting today as we come to Revelation, uh, the last book in the Bible. I've needed a bit more time than usual to kind of get ready for this because Revelation, as some of you will know, uh, Revelation is a, a bit of a challenging read. Um, it's challenging, I think, because uh, it's written in a style that's not very familiar to us. Uh, it was a style that was common 2,000 years ago, and it's very, it uses lots of symbols, uh, lots of symbols that would have been well understood when it was first written by those who first read it. Uh, but those same symbols for us are often, well, we don't really know what they mean on first glance, uh, which means the whole book of Revelation can be pretty foreign for us. Now, I'm an engineer uh, by backgrounds. Uh, details for me matter. I like uh, the details to sort of all fit together in a logical, linear way that all kind of adds up and fits neatly all together. Um, some of you might be like me, those in uh, IT or engineering or science or even law, I guess. Um, if that's you, if you're like me, Revelation, I think, is especially uncomfortable in that uh, the way the symbols all work together, the details, they're not neat. It's a, kind of a bit of a mess, really. Um, and I think if, as we come to Revelation, if we're thinking in very linear, logical, Western kind of way, which many of us uh, are trained to do, one of the things we risk is being distracted by lots of the details, trying to fit it all together. We get distracted and then miss uh, the big picture of Revelation. The good news, though, is uh, if you are uh, someone from a different background or have different strengths, if you're a poet or a painter or you know, one of those creative types I hear about, uh, especially, I think, if you're a movie maker, especially movie makers, I think Revelation will be far more comfortable territory for you. You'll see the details, they kind of just add colour, they bring vividness uh, to the big picture and don't, don't distract you from the big ideas. That's what I think is happening in Revelation. Uh, last year, we spent a bit of time in the first five chapters of the book. Uh, many of you were around for that. Uh, I recommend, actually, uh, if you have a chance, to go back and listen to the first sermon. Uh, we have it up online. Uh, the first sermon from last year is called Apocalypse Now. It's kind of an introduction to Revelation, how to, how to approach the book to uh, help it make sense for us. The main thing uh, that I think is worth listening in that sermon to uh, is it takes us to uh, chapter 1, verse 3 uh, of Revelation, where Jesus promises, if we read this book a book that many of us would prefer to avoid, if we read Revelation, if we take to heart the things written in it, we will be blessed. It's good for us. That's the promise of Jesus, that Revelation is good for us. So, uh, can I encourage you, if you haven't already, to pick up some daily reading notes. Uh, there's some at the back of the room, if you missed them last week. Uh, these will kind of just uh, act as a tour guide to kind of walk you through Revelation and point out uh, some of the features as you go. Uh, normally, uh, as a preacher, I'd jump up after the Bible's read, but I wanted to jump up before the Bible's read today uh, because it's over a year since we last looked at chapter 5. Uh, so I thought as we get to chapter 6 and 7, it's probably helpful to kind of refresh our memories uh, so that chapter 6 and 7 will make a little bit of sense. So here's a quick recap and then uh, we'll hear from the Bible. Uh, so John is the author of Revelation. He's one of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' good friends. Uh, and he's recounting a vision that Jesus had given him. And in his vision, uh, back in chapter 4, we, John is given access in, in a vision. He gets to see the throne room of heaven. It's kind of, I guess, the control center of the universe. And what follows in Revelation is kind of it's God's perspective of the events that's happening on earth. It's a God's eye view of the world. That's what Revelation is. 
So that's chapter 4, John gets to see this, everyone's praising, worshipping the one on the throne. But then in chapter 5, there's real drama, real drama. Uh, In God's hand, John sees a scroll, uh, and it seems to represent, I think, uh, kind of God's plans for history. It's a scroll that has God's plans for history. The thing is, it was sealed shut with seven seals, and no one was worthy to open it. So uh, the drama is, maybe, maybe God's plans for history won't happen. But then in chapter 5, a hero steps forward to save the day. Someone to save the world. It's a lamb. And it looks a bit deadish, actually. It's kind of an unlikely hero, I guess. Uh, but it turns out this lamb uh, is the great hero of Revelation. And spoiler alert, the lamb is Jesus. Uh, that's kind of how Revelation works. Jesus is the lamb. Uh, not literally a lamb, it's symbolic. Now, we finished last year then on a cliffhanger. Jesus steps forward, he takes the scroll. But then we wonder, well, what's going to happen? How will history unfold from this point? We've kept you waiting for a whole year. That's a long time to be in suspense. Uh, So we're going to find out what happens as the Lamb opens the seals on the scroll and we see God's plans unfold. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 6 and 7. And before Ainsley comes up to read for us, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your church this book of great imagery. Um, Just wonderful hope. As you've promised, uh, as you've promised us, please bless us as we read. Please help us to take to heart the truths we find in Revelation. And please grow us all to trust in your great plans for this world. Amen. Thanks, Ainsley. Uh, So the reading starts on page 1240 of the Blue Bibles. Um, We're reading through all of chapter 6 and 7 today, and it's quite thrilling in my opinion, so buckle up. Uh, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, 
The sun turned black like a sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had given, been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks, Ainsley. Now, everyone has a view on what the future will be like. Uh, most of us, I think, will probably fall into one of two broad categories. Uh, there are those, first, who think that uh, the progress that we've been making uh, as, as humanity, the progress we've been making will continue. Uh, there'll be bumps on the way, but more or less, things will keep getting better and better. Uh, in fact, uh, there is perhaps uh, f the great hope that many hold that one day we'll just be able to download all of our neurological information, uh, sort of upload it into the cloud, and in that sense, kind of live forever. Okay. 
there are also those who are investing huge amounts of money to have their bodies uh, frozen uh, and kept frozen until the time, that glorious day in the future, when science uh, will be able to revive their bodies, their minds, and, uh, yeah, again, live forever. Now, that's optimism, right? That's optimism. That's the first broad category. The The other category is those who call themselves realists, or, as everyone else calls you, pessimists. For this camp, uh, everyone is on borrowed time. Humanity is on borrowed time. We'll either kill each other, or uh, the environment we've destroyed will destroy us, or there'll be aliens or robots, or eventually the sun's going to blow up, we're all going to die. You guys are the ones that are fun at parties, of course. It's a pretty pessimistic view of the future. So which way is it? Which way is history heading? How does it all end? Now, Revelation is not all about the ends. There's uh, plenty of other things uh, that are very much relevant today. But the end is a big focus. And I think Revelation offers a third way that the future will play out. With the optimist, Revelation agrees that, yes, we can look forward to a better world, free of suffering, free of death. At the same time, Revelation agrees with the pessimist that, well, actually, as as humans, we cannot get there by ourselves. We saw that in the kids' talk this morning. Katie demonstrated that well. See, Revelation, it helps us look at the world and actually ourselves from God's perspective. And as that happens, we're invited to consider not just the future generally, but our own personal futures. Each one of us, as we read Revelation, is given a very clear choice between something that is either far better than anything an optimist could imagine, or far worse than being left to our own devices. As we've just seen in the thrilling passage that Ainsley read for us, Revelation does make some big claims, and does so in a a pretty weird way. So if Revelation is brand new to you, what we just read is is a strange uh, strange thing, you've just wandered into church today for the first time, or, uh, yeah, the things of Christ are still new to you, you're still finding out who Jesus is and why He matters to the world. Firstly, very big welcome to you, we're we're just delighted to have you here. Uh, My hope is that for you, as we look at Revelation together, the the big claims will become very clear, and hopefully it will be very helpful for you as you consider who Jesus is. So even if the details and the way it's written don't make a lot of sense, it's all a bit weird, I just want to say, don't worry. That's how all of us feel as we read Revelation, uh, especially myself as a preacher this morning. So then, what is clear as we look at Revelation 6 and 7? Well, let's have a look. Um, having your Bibles open will be helpful as we go. Uh, there's also an outline in your uh, leaflet, if that will be helpful for you to take some notes. Chapter 6 starts with the Lamb, that's Jesus, He's opening the first seal. Now, remember, there's seven seals keeping uh, the scroll. Uh, That's God's plans for history. Uh, The seals are keeping it shut, and as the seals start coming off, what seems to happen is God's plans for history are carried out. Now, with the first four seals, uh, four terrifying horsemen are sent out. The first conquers. The second spreads violence on the earth. The third, well, I don't know, something to do with wheat and barley... Um, it seems here, I think, that a day's wage is buying just enough food to, to survive on. Uh, so a whole day's wage, you're just getting by. So it's something to do with famine, a shortage of food, perhaps. What about not touching the oil and wine? Again, I, I really don't know. 
Uh, it seems, though, I think, uh, it's something about the good things of life still being available. That is, only the rich can afford these things, which I think makes a famine worse, doesn't it? If you can't really afford to get by and you know the rich people are doing it okay, I think that makes a famine worse. I don't know. The fourth horseman, well, that's clear enough. The fourth horseman spreads death through sword, famine, plague, and wild beasts. Now, these are, of course, uh, the famous so-called four horsemen of the... Apocalypse. Apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, what does the word apocalypse mean? Uh, in English, it's come to mean uh, basically the last, last day, the final days. Uh, but actually, the Greek word apocalypse just means revelation. Apocalypse means re- revelation. These are the four horsemen of revelation. So actually, everything we read in John's revelation is of the apocalypse. Now, I raise that simply because as we hear about these horses going out, we don't need to immediately think this is happening at the end of time. Now, when does it happen then? That's kind of a pretty relevant question. Um, I want to say that uh, the way that time seems to work in Revelation, uh, it's a major point of disagreement among Christians. Um, I'll say more about this in future sermons, I hope. Uh, if you can't wait for, for next week, uh, do use the SMS line to ask me more about time and Revelation. I'd be happy to speak more about it. But uh, my basic point on time at the moment is this. We aren't told if the horsemen are sent out at a specific point in history. So we can't be too sure. I take it, though, that it may be that these four uh, horsemen may not be actual historical people. Many Christians do think that. Uh, Now, I say that partly because as we get to the fifth seal, uh, what we see there kind of has a timeless sense to it. You look at these uh, souls under the altar and there's no significant time marker there. And so I think we can perhaps say that's true of the horsemen as well. They represent some kind of timeless truth. But I say this actually because of, I think, the most important question to keep asking as we read Revelation, which is... If I was uh, a first-century Christian living in, living in the Roman Empire, how would I understand what I'm reading? See, Revelation was written to them in a specific context. And Revelation uses symbols and language they would have most likely understood. And so these four horsemen, as terrifying and bizarre as they sound to us, if you lived in the Roman Empire in the first century, well, they're actually just a fact of life. Rome conquered their enemies with a sword, with violence. And if you've lived through that, if you've seen it, you know that war, conquest, is not glorious or romantic. It's horrific. Where the conqueror goes, goes death. Famine usually follows, and so too plague. It's true in the Roman Empire, and of course it's been true in every generation since then. If we look back through history, we see these works of the four writers sort of riddled through the pages of history. We look at the news, conquest, death, famine, violence. Now, maybe you disagree uh, that uh, these writers are perhaps uh, four real people. You might uh, hold that view, and that's fine. Um, I'm just saying, I just don't think we're told for sure. But the thing we can't miss as we look at these four writers something that is very clear is who gives these writers authority. It's easy to miss, uh, but it's crucial to see 
Have a look at the description of each rider. They are all given authority. Verse 2, he was given a crown. Verse 4, he was given power to take peace. He was given a sword. The third rider, he is given instructions. The fourth rider, verse 8, he's given power to kill. Who's giving them this authority to do these horrible things on the earth? It's very clear, it's not the powers of evil who give authority. These aren't Satan's mates going out to kind of mess everything up. These horsemen are summoned from heaven, from the throne room of God. It's God, seemingly through the Lamb, opening the seals, He gives authority to the horsemen. That's not at all a comfortable thought, is it? That ultimately, in a world that is full of war and suffering and violence, it's all completely under the authority of God. It's not comfortable to think about that. That God would allow bad things seemingly somehow standing behind them. There's much more we can say about this, and I'll come back to this uh, point uh, more next week. But for now, remember, reading Revelation as if you were living in the Roman Empire, I think it sheds a light on some of these uncomfortable truths. See, if you were persecuted by Rome, if you were living through famine or war or disease, it might be uncomfortable knowing God is somehow overseeing that. But as we get to the fifth seal, we see that it's actually because God is in control, because He's in control of absolutely everything, where we know that for those who love Him, His people, He will preserve them. He will care for them through the suffering. Perhaps more importantly, because God is absolutely in control, we know He's powerful enough to change it all. When you think about it, the alternatives, if God wasn't actually in charge of everything, if somehow evil and suffering were outside of His control, or perhaps worse, He was indifferent to it, if He was unable to stop it, that's a far more uncomfortable universe to live in. Now, when the Lamb opens the fifth seal, John sees in verse 9, under the altar, now there seems to be some kind of heavenly altar John sees, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. I don't really know what a soul looks like. John seems to be able to understand what that is. There you go. Now, the focus so far in Revelation, uh, the first four writers, it's been, the focus has been on earth, uh, the suffering that happens there. And the question you might be rightly thinking, does God care? As you get to this fifth seal, we realise, well, now, by the way, I don't think God literally keeps a collection of souls uh, you know, in his little lockbox. Uh, but clearly what this, this peek into heaven does, it shows us God's people are precious to him. There's no doubt. Their lives, our lives and deaths, are like a pleasing offering to him under his altar. And so, as Jesus, his son, is made famous in our lives, in our words and in our deaths, that's precious to God. He cares deeply. And what's more, here is the great assurance. Following Jesus is not in vain. For many, at different points in life, it does feel, we feel the cost of following Jesus. 
might be relational, financial, time, energy, heartache, all because we're following Jesus. When we're witnessing to him, being the Lord of everything, it costs us. It won't be easy, but here we see for sure it's not in vain. In verse 10, their question, their loud cry, it's not just a small request, it's a loud cry. It's the same, same cry of every generation of the church. How long, Lord? How long till you make everything right? How long till you show it's not all in vain? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, the last bit does sound bloodthirsty, doesn't it? Avenge our blood. It might be a bloodthirsty type request, yet, again, if you lived in the Roman Empire, if you'd seen your loved ones dragged away to their own violent death, it sheds a new light on it, doesn't it? This desperate cry for God is actually a cry for justice, that the wrongs would be righted. After all, don't we all want to live in a universe where there is ultimately justice? How long, Lord? How long till you step in and fix it, fix everything? It's the question, isn't it? Many of us have cried that out, wanting God to bring justice, to heal the hurts, to take away our weaknesses. We've seen some pretty horrible things so far in chapter 6. We hear a desperate plea from heaven. But when we get to verse 11, there's there's a turning point. There's a turning point in this chapter. It all happens at verse 11. Because it's here that God starts answering this question. And He does it with great assurance. The first thing you see He does, He gives out um, to each one crying out a white robe. Now, we've already seen uh, in this chapter what uh, white is used for. It's the colour of conquest, wasn't it? The first writer was white. It's the colour of a conqueror, someone victorious. It's kind of, it's almost ironic. These people, their lives were cut short, right? They, they died. Uh, you think they're kind of the losers in the game of life. But here we're told, no, they're not. They're the winners. They're victorious. Because they held firm to the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King. They didn't buckle to the pressure of the world around them to bow down to a different God or a different set of ideas. The promise here is, it's worth it. It's worth enduring because of the Word of God. The next thing God does is tell them to wait just a bit longer. Just a bit longer. And the reason is that God is still gathering His people There are more people still to gather, actually. More precious souls to bring into his kingdom. Of course, it's been uh, over 2,000 years ago, uh, about 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead. To me, 2,000 years sounds like far too long to let suffering and violence play out on the earth. It does seem like God should have stepped in, right? It does feel like way too long to be waiting for Jesus. Then you realise... Here we're given God's perspective on the question, and what we see is that He's not done yet saving people. If history had finished 100 years ago, 
100 years ago, billions of people would not be in his kingdom. People like us. So I think we can thank God that he has allowed just a little bit longer. Despite what it may seem like, God's plans for history are good. We just need to keep seeing it from his perspective, which is really what Revelation is doing for us. So it's good for us, it is good for us to cry out. We should long to see the day when there is no more injustice. We should long to see Jesus. It's right for us, it's healthy for us to lament that the world is not yet as it should be. But as we do that, as we cry out for the day to see Jesus, let's also keep thanking God that He has delayed, that He has allowed more time for still more to join His kingdom. Because what we see when we get to the sixth seal, we see the answer to the question, how long? The answer will be swift, it will be decisive, and it will be too late for those who oppose God. So in verse 12, the Lamb opens the sixth seal. Now, if war and famine are kind of the normal human experience, at the sixth seal, well, it gets a bit different, doesn't it? There's a different feel to it. I mean, a great earthquake, you know, that's common enough. But the sun turning black, the moon turning blood red, that's a bit weird, right? Pretty unusual. But then the stars fall out of the sky, well, that's, that's very unusual. Verse 14, the sky gets rolled up. I, I guess it's kind of like one of those blinds you pull down and let go and it goes... Whoosh. That's not normal. That's not an everyday occurrence, is it? Then the mountains and the islands all get messed up as well. I, this sounds to me, it sounds to me a lot like history is coming to an end. When the sixth seal is opened, that's it. Now, it's highly symbolic language, we know that. Like, no more sky, no more sun. Like, I know it's symbolic, but it seems that what it's symbolising is that life won't continue past this point. In fact, these same images are all drawn from the Old Testament, uh, and in each case, it seems to be saying, this is the day of final judgment. I think verse 15 to 16 make it uh, especially clear that what we're seeing is the final moment of history. We see everyone, all the rich, the powerful, and also the slaves and the normal people, the free person. Everyone desperately seeking whatever cover they can find. They would rather be buried alive with rocks than face up to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. Verse 16. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Literally, who can stand? Who can stand? It's terror. It's terror from the sudden realisation that the Holy God, the Creator of everything who deserves all of our lives all of our worship, all of our love, this holy God that we have ignored, or worse, hated. He's come to call people to account, and no one can stand. It's a day of terror. Notice they're terrified of the wrath of the Lamb. This Lamb, Jesus, I mean, lambs are not usually terrifying, but this one, it's clear He's not a lamb to mess with. This is not Jesus, all meek and mild, cute baby Jesus in a manger. This Jesus has seen 
countless numbers of his people mocked and beaten and killed. He's seen his church, the ones he died for, the ones he loves dearly, persecuted. This lamb has a righteous wrath, a justifiable anger. He's not going to watch on forever. He will bring judgment. Now again, this is not at all a comfortable image to have of Jesus. Especially uh, if you would not say you're in good standing with him. This is the great warning of Revelation. That a day of judgment will come. So please hear me say, if you're here and you're not ready yet for that day, please heed this warning. Yes, Revelation is weird, but it is certainly clear, don't delay. If it's time for you to do something about Jesus, don't delay. So, I'll say more in a moment about what you might do, but at very least, can I ask you to at least be curious about this warning? That is, don't, find it, don't delay finding out whether this warning should be taken seriously. Like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? If so, this warning has a fair bit of weight to it. Is there evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Can Jesus be trusted? Please, heed the warning. The warning is, on that day, it will be too late. For all of us, here's the big question of chapter 6. On that day, how do I make sure I'm one of the ones that are standing? How do I make sure that I'm okay? That's the question, isn't it? You read the terrifying day of the wrath of the Lamb. How do I know that I will stand? The very good news is that chapter 7, I think, answers that question. Chapter 7 tells us who can stand and how. You would have noticed that chapter 7 sort of gives us a break from the opening of the seals. We only got to the sixth seal. The seventh seal comes at chapter 8. I think we get a break from that because the good news of chapter 7 is so good, you actually need to spend some time thinking about it. The good news is that for those who trust in Jesus, for those who bow before Jesus as Lord, there is no reason to fear. None. At the start of chapter 7, that seems to be the big idea. See, at the start of chapter 7, there are angels. They're sort of prepared to unleash havoc on the world. Um, I take this this as a flashback, sort of before the end of the world in chapter 6. Otherwise, you know, why would wind be a problem if you've got no sky or stars? Like, it seems to be time to sort of jump back a little bit to give us insight into chapter 7. So I think this is a replay of God's coming judgment. The angels are about to unleash this destruction, but they're told to wait because... God's people, still on earth, are to be protected. They'll be stamped like a seal or some sort of ownership. I assume, again, that's not a literal stamp. The big idea, it seems, is that God knows and will maintain every single one of His people. God knows and will protect every single one. And He won't bring about the final day until we are all counted. I think that's how to understand verses 2 and 3 for me. Uh, And I think that helps us as we get to verse 4. It probably doesn't surprise you that there are a lot of debates about who the 144,000 are. You know, are they literally people from Israel? Uh, Is it an exact number? 
Like somehow representative is a number more symbolic. Um, a lot of debates. I'm not 100% certain, but I'll tell you, I do lean towards this being a symbolic representation uh, of all of God's people. All of those who are known by God. Um, I think that partly because of how numbers seem to work in Revelation. Numbers generally uh, are more symbolic than literal. We've seen the number seven uh, lots of times representing the idea of fullness or completeness. And 144, well, you know, 12 by 12, that's, you know, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. It says something, doesn't it, about the fullness, a full number of God's people. And a thousand times by a thousand, well, that's just a big number. Lots of people, but all counted. I think that's what's going on. But uh, the main reason that I think the 144,000 represent all of God's people, not just uh, that exact number, uh, is that in verse 4, have a look at this, John hears the number in verse 4, he hears the number, but have a look at verse 9, then he looks and sees an uncountable multitude. He hears something, then he sees something different. Now the thing is, uh, we saw this back in chapter 5, for those of you who have excellent memories. Uh, in chapter 5, John hears about the line of Judah. But then when he turns to look at this line, what does he see? He sees a lamb. It's the same person, it's Jesus. Point is, when John hears a large full number from the tribes of Israel, all counted out, he's expecting one thing, but he turns to inspect it, he sees the full reality, he sees the full picture. I'm happy to be wrong about that, uh, but this is what makes sense to me. And what it all seems to be about then is that God will not let one single person who belongs to Him be lost. Everyone is counted. And perhaps more exciting, even more exciting, is that God is gathering the biggest, most multicultural, most diverse, most awesome crowd to be part of. Look what they're doing in verse 9. They are standing. Who can stand before the Lamb? They can. They can stand. But they're not just standing, are they? They are going nuts. They are praising, they are celebrating. Imagine for a moment being in this crowd. I'm not sure if you can imagine, just try your hardest. Imagine being in a crowd so big it can't be counted. Everyone's shouting and singing the same thing in a loud voice, not mumbling along. They're singing about the thing that matters most, salvation. They're singing about salvation that comes from God, that belongs to God. Now, we just read chapter 6. There's, there's a backdrop there, this, this terror of that day. Doesn't this help us see how precious salvation is? This crowd, they know what they've been saved from and they're delighted. I think it shows us, of all the things in our lives that we love, that we value, surely salvation must be the thing we seek to cherish the most. I found uh, my time in Revelation really helpful for this. Um, sometimes I think salvation, uh, as you follow Jesus for a while, it can be something we start to take for granted a little bit, get sort of blurred, the significance of it can get blurred by other things. But after such a confronting chapter, uh, chapter 6, and just, just bearing the thought for a moment of standing before the full wrath of God. When you get to chapter 7, how much more clearly, how much bigger does the cross of Jesus become? 
How much more do we cherish our salvation? We still haven't got yet uh, to the biggest question of them all. How do I make sure that I am in that crowd? How do I get this salvation? Uh, I love this exchange. I'm from verse 13. Uh, One of the elders asked me, this is John speaking, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? Now, John plays it pretty cool here, doesn't he? Verse 14. He's like, ah, well, Mr. Almighty Angel who sits on the throne... Uh, why don't you tell me? I think you know. It's nicely, nicely played, John. Who are those who can stand? Verse 14. They are those who have covered themselves in the blood of the Lamb. It's a pretty strange image, isn't it? But like the rest of the Bible, what we see very clearly in Revelation is that it's all about the good news that Jesus shed His blood for our salvation. These people aren't standing before God because they lived a good life. They don't get to stand because they're religious or because they've tried their best. These people stand only because they've accepted that Jesus' blood is the only thing that will make them right with God. Jesus' blood is the great sign, a great vivid image that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that it won't be poured out on us. In God's eyes, the blood of Jesus, it purifies. It washes us from every sin. It washes us from everything that, everything we've ever done that would deserve God's right anger. There is nothing better than to be saved by the blood of the Lamb. This is all about the assurance that believers in Jesus should have for the future. Because our confidence rests entirely on the blood of the Lamb. So if you're someone here who trusts Jesus, please hear that you should have no fear of that day. And so, we should cherish this beautiful salvation, the precious blood of Jesus. There is nothing better. Let this chapter remind us to keep putting other priorities in their right place. And if you're someone who doesn't yet trust Jesus, please hear that's all it takes to be safe on that day. Turn to Jesus and trusting that His blood, only His blood, will make you clean and acceptable to God. Please come and chat with me further if you'd like to hear more about that or in your leaflets as a tear-off slip, you can just make a note. We'd love to chat more about that because this salvation is wonderful. Now, that's a high point. I could finish there, but it gets even better. It gets even better. Verse 15 to 17, we've seen what we've been saved from The chapter finishes with an even better, if I can put it that way, an even better better illustration of what we've been saved for. We had a glimpse of the future. Now, this song or poem in verses 15 to 17, it gives us a picture of what we're looking forward to as God's people. So if you're ever tempted to take our salvation for granted, well, reflecting on this picture of eternity, it's good for our hearts. Day and night in the temple, that's in God's joy-giving presence all of the time. There, God is embracing His people. We get all of our deepest relational needs fully met. God's protecting us. There's no reason for fear or terror or anxiety or depression. We never, ever know hunger 
or pain or grief. We get to drink deeply from springs of living water. I don't even know what that means, but gee, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds refreshing. It seems to me that to help us cherish our salvation now, to live as people who are saved, it seems that what we're being told in Revelation is to keep our eyes fixed on that day, keep our hearts fixed on the end. We might do that in how we pray. It's good and right for us to pray for this day to come soon. Another good way, and uh, this is where I'll finish, and this is perhaps the best way we can set our hearts on this future day, is to sing. It's to sing. Revelation, you'll notice as we read through, is packed full of praise and choruses. The book overflows with the worship of eternity. And here we are uh, on a Sunday morning in an old RSL hall, a hundred or so of us in this room. We might, as we sing, not sound like the angels of heaven. Sound pretty good, though. It might not feel like we're joining in with the angels, but in reality, as we gather as God's people, we are joining in with the choruses of eternity when we sing. That's a pretty exciting thought, isn't it? We're not just going through the motions, just singing because that's what we do every week. Singing plugs us into the deepest and most wonderful realities of our universe. And it's so, so good for us. Singing is a, it's a kind of a, a precious and unusual activity because it unites, it brings together our mind as we think about the words we're singing, our bodies are engaged in the action, and our emotions, our hearts are tied up in uh, the, the swelling emotional kind of sense of music. It's such a gift from God that we can sing, and we can do it together. We can sing so that those who are struggling and can't praise, they're feeling it difficult, we can carry them along on our voices. We give each other confidence in a world that is hard following Jesus. We give each other confidence as we sing loudly, we sing joyfully, and from time to time, even sing in tune. Now, to help us keep growing as a church that sings, Kelly, uh, who oversees our music ministry, Kelly's put together a great playlist uh, of Revelation. Uh, We'll send out the links so you can listen along and belt it out in the car or the shower. Singing will help us cherish our salvation and look forward to that day. Keep the end in sight. Keep singing. It will be just a little longer. Uh, we're going to sing in a moment, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. It's obviously the song we should be singing at this point. Uh, as the band comes up and gets ready to lead us in song, please join me in prayer. To the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise, be glory and wisdom, and thanks, and honour, and power, and strength, now, tomorrow, next week, and forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.